Well, if you'd like to have your Bibles open at Psalm 103, uh, we're going to look at uh, that psalm this evening. If you write notes, uh, then the heading for this evening is, is a question. What is God's due? What do we owe to God? What is it that our lives, um, in our lives we should be giving to God? Well, I'm fairly sure that as I preach this evening, that most in this building would struggle with the notion of simply doing enough to please God. Most of you are twicers. Uh, that is, you do not consider turning out once in the morning sufficient uh, a time for, for worshipping God. Uh, that little God slot in your lives, as many would have, just uh, turning out once on a Sunday. Uh, and you would perhaps already view yourself as being committed. Maybe some of you are even three times a week. You know, you might be out uh, to the midweek Bible study as well. So you might be feeling fairly sure that you are giving quite a lot back uh, to the Lord in some way or another. Or some of you might even be like three or four times out in the week for some kind of church-related issue. Um, even if that is the case, let me suggest to you that there might be a little bit of uh, something going on under the surface. Because in reality, many of us simply, well, we wouldn't come so far as to say that we are simply doing enough. Uh, we would like to put it in a slightly different, different ways. Uh, we might have a little bit of a I've done my bit mentality. You know, you look around you and all the other church members are, are, are only pulling part of their weight as far as you're concerned as you, as you look around. Uh, and maybe there is a query in the back of, uh, of your mind sometimes when an event comes up. Well, I've done my bit. You know, it's for somebody else to take on at this point. Uh, and you look around and hope that somebody's going to step forward. Or you might get into this kind of thinking. Well, I, I wouldn't want to get tied into that level of commitment issue. As, as a pastor, I know what it's like. You know, I, I ask my church members whether they might like to be involved in something. I might even go and, uh, you know, they, they hate it when I come to them after a service and they've got that look in my eye uh, when I'm going to ask them to do something. And they've kind of, uh, they take this view that, well, I, you know, I, I don't mind helping out from time to time, but I just don't want to tie myself into that. There's that kind of a, uh, of a mentality which can uh, run in the church. Or, or we might even not go that far. We might go to this level. We might sort of say, well, I'm sure that God understands that I'm doing everything I can at this moment. I'm sure when God looks at me, he doesn't expect any more. He's, he's fully aware of all the things that I am doing. Well, inherent with that is this idea that it has to be enough. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean by that that we feel that we have given as much as we can, that um, we have in some way done enough. Because, well, in reality, we don't want to give anymore. In reality, we feel that we've kind of come to that level of service which looks sufficient uh, to those around us. We kind of have that mentality. Well, this psalm really comes to challenge that kind of thinking. It comes to challenge us, to make us to think about what it is that God is due, what it really is in our lives that, is, that he is worthy of. Now, this psalm is a, is a blessed psalm. It's a, it's a psalm that many go to, a psalm that is considered a towering peak over the mountain peaks that are the psalms. The, you know, if you think about the psalms as a, as a range of mountains, this one, in many ways, comes to have a peak which is above 
uh, all the others. And lots of people get very excited because it is a psalm of praise. Well, as we come to look at this, well, I want you to understand that it begins with personal praise. Our response to God begins with personal praise, and that comes in verses 1 to 5, my personal praise. The psalmist is exhorting himself to praise God. He is exhorting himself uh, from his very core, as it were, to lift his voice in adoration to God. The psalmist wants us to consider how we personally adore the Lord. Now, do you adore Christ? Do you adore Jesus Christ, the Lord of your life? Do you give him the praise that he is due? And if so, what does that look like? Well, we know what it looks like in the music industry, don't we? If we, um, if the people that we would consider to be adoring fans of someone who, uh, of a music group of some some uh, kind, I'm not going to say any music groups because as I look around the room, there's a diversity, no doubt, of tastes, and uh, I'll probably pick the wrong one, and you'll all go ugh. Um, but the reality is that that, all, that that many of us, and many certainly in the world around us, have an adoring. Uh, relationship towards a group or an individual, someone that they uh, value their work, they like all that they put out. And an adoring fan, well, they might decorate their home with kind of, uh, their, with the, their idols, paraphernalia, as it were. So their particular music group, you think of the young teenage girls that plaster their walls with all the groups or the, or the men within the groups that they quite like the look of and, uh, and enjoy the, their taste in, in music. And they might use their money and time to buy themselves tickets to go to where their particular group or, or, or artist is playing. They will take time out of their busy week. In fact, they will work towards that point at which they can go. They will uh, put a lot of time and effort and energy into that. And not only that, they will listen to their group or their person of choice, their artist of choice, all the while. They'll have it on their MP3 player or on their phone these days. And they'll listen to them constantly in order that they might absorb all that they are uh, putting out there. And more than that, even more than that, they will actually go around and tell everybody how wonderful they are. In fact, you've, I've no doubt you've met somebody who can bore you to tears about uh, the wonder of, uh, well, uh, John Bon Jovi or somebody like that. That's I guess going back a little bit, but you know what I mean. Um, they'll, they'll tell you how wonderful these folk are. And there is adoring worship. It is a desire to be with that person or to know those people in a, a way that really affects their lives. Well, here the psalmist comes and he wants us to be involved in wholehearted praise. That comes in verse 1. He wants us to be involved in, involved in wholehearted praise. Now, what is wholehearted praise? Well, it's more than just lips. Wholehearted praise is more than just lips. Uh, to the people of old, God said in Isaiah, he, he warned them, the Lord said to them, these people come near me with their mouth and they honour me with their lips, but their heart are far from me. Their worship of me is merely based on human rules that they have been taught. And that was the problem with the Old Testament way of going on. They began to just keep rules. Instead of wanting God, instead of desiring him, they simply kept the rules. They simply did what they thought that they needed to do in order to honour God. In fact, Jesus really brings that home, doesn't he, and talks about the Pharisees in his day. 
And again, here were a group of people who were not just pleased with the Ten Commandments and the Levitical laws. They added laws to those in order that they might appear super holy in a sense, that they might prove that they are worshipping God in the right way. Yet Jesus looked right into their hearts and he recognized that they did not really adore him. They did not really worship him as they should. So it's more than just lips, but it's also more than body. You know, it's one thing, isn't it, to praise God with your lips, but then there should be actions lived out in your life. And, and Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, it comes at the end of 11 chapters of just the uh, just marveling in the wonder of God's grace to us. And we are called to be those who give our whole bodies, as it were. It says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, everything that you do should count towards God. Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And we were talking about that this morning. The whole idea that every part of our life should be used to bring glory and praise to God. Our speech and what we do with our lives. But it's even more than that, isn't it? Because it actually involves our whole minds. It involves the whole of our thinking. Um, you know, sometimes we can look as though we are serving God, we can speak as though we are serving God, yet inside here, we are at war with God, we're at odds with him and his purposes. And one of the most famous times when that happened is if you remember Peter, uh, that wonderful disciple who seems to say everything that we think um, and gets into trouble for it, um, he, as it were, he comes to Jesus and uh, when Jesus is telling him that he needs to lay down his life, that he is going to give his life up, that he is going to suffer and die. Uh, and Peter comes and says that that shouldn't be. Well, Jesus turns to him and he, he looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, he said. Uh, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So our worship, our praise of God should be all of us. It should be all of uh, us. It's what is due to God. And the psalmist exhorts us to be involved in it. All of you, due to God alone, to the one who has brought us into being, to the one who has given us the very breath that we breathe. To God alone, the Lord, it's told here, Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who has made promises that he himself will keep. And as we come into the New Testament, we begin to understand that that's telling us of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great I am, the covenant God. He is the one who uh, will bring about the transformation of our lives in order that we might serve him. And we thought quite long about that this morning. And praise is due to his holy name. Now I don't know when you stop and think about your life whether that's true. Is all of my life given to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I adoring him with everything that I have? Well, we begin to see that unpacked, what it looks like even in, in far greater way. We discover that there is to be grateful praise. That comes in verses 2 through to 5. Grateful praise. Now, praise is all around us. As people praise, they go to the football terraces when their team wins. Uh, the, you know, the whole of the stadium stands on its feet and roars for their team as they praise their team because they've done something which, as far as they're concerned, was good for them. But largely, that's really entertainment, isn't it? Uh, but here we're told that we are to be those who gratefully praise God. And what does that look like? Well, heartfelt, heartfelt praise goes 
to the person when you are receiving something for which you are immensely grateful. You know, think of your birthday, and birthday comes around once a year, and so often you get those handkerchiefs and socks and exciting things like that, which, which you should be grateful for. But just occasionally, somebody will give you something for your birthday, which may not be expensive, but just shows that they've spent time thinking about you, thinking <coughs> about what you are like as a person. And they give you a gift, and it just makes that uh, your heart glow, doesn't it? And you overflow with praise, with thanksgiving for the goodness that they give, uh, for the good thing that they've given to you. You start, can't stop giving thanks to them. The psalmist reminds us that we are not to forget any of the Lord's benefits. We are not to forget any of the Lord's benefits, the good blessings that he gives to us. But you know, there's a little trap there, isn't there? Because we can fall into the trap of, well, giving thanks for the blessings and we forget to give thanks to the one who has given the blessings to us. You see, knowing God, being in relationship to him, brings a whole host of blessings because of who he is. The, the blessings, the good gifts, the benefits are simply what comes from knowing the God who is able to give them. The temptation can be sometimes just to think of the benefits and not the God who gives them. It's not the benefits that we are to exalt in, but rather the one who brings those benefits. We are to be praising God for his forgiveness to us. Now, forgiveness is valueless, isn't it? Uh, unless it comes from the one who has been wronged. You know, sometimes you'll have someone come to you and they'll say they're ever so sorry for something that they've done. And you rack your brain to think about what it was that they did. You know, something has really bothered them. They thought that you took offence over something, but it's completely passed you by. Now, you might say that you forgive them, but in, re in reality, it's a bit of an empty uh, forgiveness because you weren't really sure what it was that they were supposed to have done in the first place. And as far as you're concerned, they probably didn't do anything wrong. Well, it's, it's, it's really a bit empty, isn't it? But when we have wronged someone, when we have offended someone, and they forgive us, then there is blessing in that forgiveness, isn't there? And here is the beautiful thing. Now, many years ago, and this is confessions uh, of a pastor, many years ago when I lived in Kent, um, I commissioned a newly qualified carpenter to put a, a fitted wardrobe into my bedroom. He was a young man. He was in the church that I was uh, at at that time. Uh, and uh, I asked him to price up the job, and he gave me one price, and he came and did the job, and it took him considerably longer than he had anticipated, and he charged me considerably more than I'd anticipated. Well, to cut a long story short, and this isn't something I'm particularly proud of, um, it came to the point where I felt I'd given him enough money, really, quite frankly, um, and so I, I didn't pay any more. Um, I got to a certain point, but I didn't go the whole hog, and, well... This young man, he never said a word, um, and eventually I moved away and forgot about all of those kind of things until one day God really brought that home to me and reminded me that I owed this young man money. Now, what do you do when that, in that kind of a situation? How do you get beyond that? Well, I wrote him a letter, and I put uh, in the letter, I put a check for what I owed him, plus uh, the interest accrued and all of those kind of things to make restitution towards him, and I didn't know kind of what kind of response I would get and I waited to see how that would come back to me and I was a little bit nervous you know pastor of a church it's not a good thing to withhold uh, what is due to someone and uh, one wondered what kind of 
uh, feedback I would get. Well, eventually I got the letter. Uh, and I was thoroughly relieved to realize that he had forgiven me. And he told me that in God's grace, that, that when I um, sent that check, it came at exactly the right time. Um, his van had broken down and he hadn't got enough money to fix it. And in God's grace, it worked out. Now, I'm not telling you to withhold money just in case it works out sometime down the line. I'm just telling you that actually when you are forgiven, it feels good, doesn't it? When you know that you've done something wrong and they truly have forgiven you. Uh, and isn't that a, a gorgeous, a brilliant feeling? And this is what makes forgiveness glorious. The one that I rebelled against, the one whose name I profaned, uh, whose word I have used and abused, whose word I have ignored, whose son I have rejected, has forgiven me in the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes praise all the more glorious, doesn't it, to know that we've been forgiven. We are, we are those who have been healed, we discover in the passage. Reality is that it's dealing with salvation issues in the context. That makes it plain. But let's imagine it's about physical ail ailments as well. Uh, what is being celebrated, though, we need to understand, is not the healing itself, but rather the one who gives the healing. Are uh, you in our world today of, of churches that we uh, perhaps mix with or, or, or have dealings with? There's an awful lot made of healing. And if you're not careful, that balance swings to worshipping healing rather than worshipping the God who can heal. You know, it's a bit daft, isn't it? You know, if we were to visit the hospital and undergo an operation, you don't thank the operation for um, its success, do you? You actually write your letter to the surgeon who carried it out and you give thanks to him. You say, thank you for doing what you did. Thank you for, uh, you know, allowing me or working on me and it, it's, it's worked out so well. We are grateful for the one who has carried it out and we're grateful that the procedure is around in order that we might be healed. But we need to be careful. We need to be praising the one who heals us. And when we're thinking of our own sins, where well, we're grateful that not only are we forgiven, but we are healed. We are, God moves in and he transforms us. He makes us new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made completely new. We are redeemed. The picture is of falling into a pit, one that you cannot get out of. God is the rescuer who comes along and there you are trying to claw your way out of a pit. It's slimy sides and the harder you try and uh, climb to get out of it, the further down the hole you seem to slip. You just can't get to where you need to get. And here is the one who comes and rescues you, who pulls you out or, or pays, as it were, the redemption fee, the release fee in order that you may be lifted free. It is God that we rejoice in. Jesus who paid the cost, who plumbed the very depths of the hole that we are in, who came down and rescued us in that sense. We discover that not only have we been rescued from the pit, but that we have been crowned, we have been brought to the palace. Not we were around in that slimy old pit, and now the Lord Jesus comes along and he picks us out, and he puts us in the palace. It doesn't just put us anywhere in the palace. We're in the throne room itself. You know, the beautiful thing is that uh, we are told that we are going to reign with Christ. You're going to have a crown. <laughs> and you're going to actually be able to be uh, actively involved in the world that the Lord Jesus is bringing for us. We will rule with him. In fact, uh, in the language of... Um, 
of the palace. We are going to be the heirs that inherit from the King Eternal. We are going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, joint heirs. Imagine for a moment that, uh, uh, you know, we talked this morning about our Queen and, and Prince Charles. Well, imagine for a moment that you're, you're Prince Charles's twin brother. You know, and the Queen passes away and everything that belongs to the Queen now comes to you and your brother. Well, it's not even quite the same because in the sense that you would inherit half the kingdom each, well, that's not quite right because you inherit all that is the Lord Jesus to give. That's a glorious picture that you have been crowned. We've been satisfied, we're told in the text. Satisfaction is a curious thing, isn't it? It seems elusive. You know, you wake up one day, you feel thoroughly satisfied with your life. Everything seems to be going swimmingly. You're enjoying your job. It goes so well. And within a week, the satisfaction's gone. You know, everything seems to have lost uh, the, the joy that it once had. You're not quite where it would be. It's, it's there, but you seem to grab a hold of it. And as soon as you grab a hold of it, it's moved away. And the reason for that is that we fall into seeking the good things over the good God. Our satisfaction can only be found in God himself. It is not found in the things that he gives. It is found in, in God himself, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we adore and worship him. Uh, once we realize that, once we have grasped that it is in having Jesus that satisfaction is real, it enables us to stop seeking the feeling and instead find the reality. Uh, in our experience-driven culture, sadly, even Christians pursue the feel-good factor, don't they? You know, they want to find a church where they're going to feel good. They want to find a church where there will be a little or no challenge in the sense of that they will be uh, able to come along and enjoy and then go away and live just as they please. Uh, and in some way they believe that because ha living in that kind of halfway house that they're going to be satisfied. Well, the reality is that we need to be those that are seeking Christ. That we want to grasp a hold of him because that's where real satisfaction is found. But not only are we satisfied, we discover that we are renewed. Life is exhausting. You know, from day to day, I, uh, who knew that what life was going to feel like at 43 years of age? And some of you are much older than me. Um, <laughs> Uh, but when you think as a teenager you've got boundless energy, you think you can do anything. Just set your mind to it and you can do it. And as you get older you realise that quite frankly your body just does not keep up with your mind's capabilities. And it can be quite, uh, quite disconcerting, can't it? We try holidays, leisure activities, change circumstances. We go on retreats. We try anything to gain back that which we once had. The, the, the youth and the vigour that we felt that we enjoyed back then. Well, the reality is that the only place to renew your strength is in Jesus, in the Lord himself. Remember King David? Well, he wasn't King David at that time, just David who had been anointed as king. And King, king Saul at the time seeks to find King David to, to kill him. And quite frankly, you'd be depressed at that, wouldn't you, really? One of your relatives seeking to take your life, that wouldn't be a particularly pleasant experience. Well, what does David do? Does he go on a holiday? Well, he does try going into one of the neighboring places. It doesn't work out too well for him when he does that. But what we do have on one occasion is this. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. If you want to know where you're going to find your strength to live for the day that you've got coming tomorrow, you're going to find it in the Lord Jesus Christ and nowhere else. 
Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus? Do you know those things as your personal uh, blessings that you enjoy because of all that the Lord Jesus has done for you? Uh, our corporate pray, there's corporate praise in verses 6 through to 18. The psalmist now widens up our thoughts from what God has done for us as individuals to think in terms uh, of the family of God, of the corporate, corporate benefits of God's people. We discover that God is our protector. As his people as a whole, God works to protect us. What do you do when things begin to go wrong, uh, to begin to go against you? Uh, when you suffer injustice and hardship, what do you do? Well, here the psalmist rejoices that as God's people, we have recourse. We have protection. And that is in the person of Christ. The situation might seem humanly impossible. The injustice runs right to the top. You know, as I go out to Uganda, some of the Ugandans out there get very frustrated because right from the very, uh, their very local level of infrastructure, right up to the government, it is corrupt from beginning to end. And they just don't know where to turn. Well, when I go out there, I continually say to them, we'll turn to the Lord. He's higher than a lot of them. He can deal with all of that. You never will, but he will. He is the one who can protect us and go with us and lead us in, in paths of righteousness. Uh, but with God, we need to remember, don't we, that one man and God is a majority. Uh, and so often we forget that. We see the pressure of the world around us. We assume that they're the big guy uh, and we're the puny little nobodies. Well, we need to get that shifted because we have God with us, protecting us, working for us. And here is the thing, though. Um, actually, let me read to you this quote that I found. Faith hears the inaudible, sees the invisible, believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, worth saying again, faith hears the inaudible, sees the invisible, believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. That's the God that we have, the one who is watching over us. And here's the thing, in God's plan, you may have to weather the storm. What we want is a God that rescues us out in the midst of the storm so that we can just sail on through life as though there were no troubles. But we need to remember that we can trust God in the midst of the storm. He may not remove the problem that you're facing. But he certainly will be with you in the midst of it. We need to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, 1 Peter chapter 2, 23. When they hurled, ins hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Think you're brave enough to do that? To lay yourself entirely upon God, even if it looks as though everything else is going wrong around us not only that he's the revelatory god we find that in verse 7 how do we know what god is like only because he has revealed himself to us many today would say well i think god is like this have you ever had that conversation it can be frustrating can't it you know they say well i you know i want to i believe god i, I want to follow god and i believe that god is like this and you realize that they're describing a god that is not the god of the bible it's a god of their own making it is God that they have made up. But our God leaves us no room for such uninformed nonsense. He has revealed himself and his plan to his people down through the ages. We were talking again this morning about the, the blueprint of uh, the, the uh, tabernacle worship that was pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ who would fulfill it completely. So he revealed himself all the way along until he comes to the perfect revelation, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who reveals God to us with amazing clarity. 
the one who shines into our darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. As I look upon Christ, as I read the scriptures and learn more about Christ, so I know more of my precious God who loves me and gave his son for me. Compassion and grace. He's a compassionate and gracious God towards his people. Comes out in 8 through to 18. That is what the psalmist begins to unpack in these following verses. He tells us that he is slow to anger in verses 8 to 10. His character is not just revealed by words but by concrete actions. He, the one that we have offended, can justly hold our sin against us. He can see our thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. He knows us inside and out. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He knows the direction of your life and he can rightly hold you to account because he knows the reason that you have done everything and he sees everything that you have done and he can be rightly angry with you because he is not like our authorities duped if we give a good enough story he knows us he sees us and he is aware of all that we have done but here we discover that with God he chooses not to hold your wrong against you wow we have done nothing to turn aside his wrath to deserve better treatment our sins would have been justly punished but God himself has taken the initiative he has for the good of his people and for the honour of his name dealt with his own anger his just anger and he has done that in the Lord Jesus Christ and we discover that he's abounding in love verse 11 to 18 for all those who respond to him rightly who view him in the right light who recognise his authority on our lives he has poured out his love again it's seen in concrete ways it is no small love it is a vast love we read in the text well we sing it don't we how vast or how deep the father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ cleansed made right and abounding in love as his love comes towards us in the concrete fact of his son verse 12 he has dealt with our sin as far as the east is from the west you know you get your compass out and it tells you which way east and which way is west and you can keep going that way as far as you like and you discover that the compass is still telling you you haven't yet reached east what's it trying to tell us well, the point is that it's made your sin which removed your sin so that it cannot come back to haunt you. It cannot come back and cause you future problems because the Lord Jesus has dealt with it. God himself loves you like a father. A good father cares for his children, doesn't he? Uh, at least that's what I'm told a good father should do. Um, he cares for his children. He'll watch over them. He'll help them. He'll encourage them. He'll allow them to explore and learn, yet not permit them to come to harm or at least do his best to make sure that they will not come to harm. Well, as parents, we would love to be able to protect our children from anything that would do harm, wouldn't we? 
Uh, we wish sometimes that we could remove our children from the path that they're on and put them on a better one in the hope that, uh, you know, that they'll, they'll, they'll learn from that. But sometimes uh, we have to learn our lessons the hard way. But for the Christian, we discover that God works all things for our good. Romans 8, 28, if we are those who are called by the Lord Jesus Christ, then all things, even the rubbish things, even the things actually that we get wrong, can be used for our good. Such is the grace of God. We don't deserve that, but such is the grace of God in the midst of our lives. But he understands our weaknesses as well, verses 14 to 16. Uh, maybe you've had the experience of taking your children to another home, only to discover that there are ornaments everywhere, you know? That's a horrifying experience for, an adult, for a parent, isn't it? You walk into the room and you've got your young children with you, and, and everywhere you look there are lovely glass ornaments, you know? terrifying experience for a parent uh, your heart sinks because you know your children are not going to have the, the thought that these things are fragile that just does not cross their mind in any way shape or form you spend the next hour or two terrified running around after your children um, as they wave their hands carelessly about all over the place you know you're just desperate to get away to move away. I actually ended up staying with a family that was like that on one occasion uh, I was asked to go and they were considering me to be their pastor and invited me into this home um, and it was an ornate beautiful home and my heart sank as we walked in the door knowing that we'd got two days to spend there um, we did manage to make it without breaking anything unfortunately one of my children was sick all over the floor but that's a whole other story um, but you know God knows what we are like he knows how weak and how broken we are and in his grace he makes allowances for that in his grace he acknowledges that we are weak and we do not think about some things he knows us and has not walked away the question is do we understand our own predicament do we adore him for all that he does 17 and 18 his love is constant for his people human love tends to wax and wane even the most loving person finds themselves questioning their love for another they might they might be uh, have been childhood sweethearts and have gone for 60 years in their marriage but i can guarantee that as they've gone along that path there will be parts along that way when they've wondered whether they did the right thing they've wondered whether this was really the best choice that they ever made but here is the wonderful thing when god sets his love upon you he never regrets it and we think well how can that possibly be true do you know what i did last week it's a rhetorical question I'm not asking you what I did last week <laughs> but we know don't we and here is that everlasting love that comes towards us he has blessed us individually and as a whole we owe God our lives and every single thing and that's what I really want to bring us to there is universal praise in verses 19 to 22 it's not just individuals or his people that should praise God but it but all that is his from heaven downwards should praise him. Sovereign ruler we discover he is in verse 19. He is the one with absolute power. All that takes place is governed by him. In our world we have rulers that we consider to be absolute. You know we've got somebody in North Korea who rules his people with absolute. He rules with fear doesn't he? The only way he can get what he wants is to terrify his people into doing what they should do well our God is a sovereign ruler but he's not like that 
he draws us with his loving kindness in order that we might serve him, though he is completely in control. His rule is absolute in the sense that nothing happens without his permission. Not even one sparrow, the Bible tells us, falls from the sky, or one hair from your head. You know, sometimes, you know, as you're brushing your hair and it all just falls out, the Lord knew every number of them. We don't, but he knew every num number and he tells you, and he knew which ones he was going to let go on that occasion. So in control is the Lord, our God. His kingdom is an established kingdom, not one being made, but one that is. It's his universe, it's his world, it's his air, it's his creation. And to him all is due, not some, not most, but all praise is due to him for everything that he has, for everything that he does, and actually for everything that he doesn't do. If the Lord counted our sin, we would be crushed. We need to praise the Lord that he doesn't. If he counted it against us, but in his grace, he removes it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect praise, verses 20 and 21, from the seraphim, the cherubim, the archangels to the regular angels, if there are such things. I don't know whether there are, um, but the Bible tells us about different categories of angels, as it were. Those who do his biddings, they all serve him faithfully and perfectly praise his flowing. A cacophony or a harmony of praise into which we come when we join our voices and lives to them. We sing about it sometimes in our songs, don't we? Angels' voices ever singing round the throne of light. Angels' music ever ringing. Rest not day nor night. Thousands only live to bless you and confess you, Lord of might. Or a slightly different one. Come, let us join our cheerful songs with angels round the throne. Ten thousand thousand are their tongues, but all their joys are one. Worthy is the Lamb, they cry, who di died and now is praised worthy so our hearts reply to him by whom we're saved I wonder whether you lift your voice and join with the perfect praise that goes along every day that is made rightly to our God all praise in verse 22 we come back round to the understanding that there is nothing in all creation that does not owe God praise everything that he has done all that he has made owes their lives to him their being their very being should be given in praise rightly the psalmist exhorts us as he closes this, this psalm to praise he rightly exhorts his soul to praise the Lord it should be our natural business we're too often moaning aren't we about the situation that we've been placed in too often moaning about the problems that we see every day to stop and actually do what we should do, which is praise God that he's right there with us in the midst of it. He sees us, he knows us, there is nothing that he is not with us in. What is God's due in this day? We started with that question, didn't we? Well, our whole being invested in praising him. All of us. Every single part of our body our very inner being should be about the business of praising God your thoughts, your actions, your body, your whole life anything else less than that is sin of which we should repent I wonder whether you do that get to the end of the day and just say Lord 
I know I should have praised you today in the midst of that awful situation that ha happened earlier. Forgive me for not praising you, but let me lift my voice in praise to you now that you have brought me through it, that you've given me wings as eagles, that I might fly even in the midst of the difficulty. I'm going to quote to you one hymn. I'm going to quote it right the way through. Jesus, the name high over all, in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before it fall, and devils fear and fly. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fear, it brings them peace of heaven. Jesus, the prisoner's fetters breaks and bruises Satan's head, power into strengthless souls he speaks and life into the dead. Oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace. The arms of love that compass me would all mankind embrace. Him as my righteousness I show, his saving truth proclaim, tis all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb. Happy if with my latest breath I might but gasp his name, preach him to all and cry in death, Behold, behold the Lamb. I wonder whether that will be true of us when it comes to that day that we pass away, that we'll still be praising the Lord, even with our very last breath. We're going to uh, sing our last song, All I Once Held Dear, and we're going to remind ourselves that we have something much greater in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand and praise him as we sing that together.